Welcome to the Academic CME Podcast. As always, this program is a top quality accredited CE activity. If you would like to receive credit for this or any other Academic CME Podcast, please click the link in the description below or go to academiccme.com forward slash podcast. Welcome to this continuing education program titled Scientific Updates to Improve Outcomes in Patients with Alzheimer's Disease, Strategies to Care for Alzheimer's Patients During COVID-19. Today's topic is Early Diagnosis and Biomarkers in Alzheimer's Disease. This activity is supported by an independent educational grant from Biogen and is provided by Academic CME. Hi, my name is Dr. Richard Isaac. I direct the Alzheimer's Prevention Clinic at Weill Cornell Medicine in New York Presbyterian, and I'm an Associate Professor of Neurology and Assistant Dean for Faculty Development. It gives me great pleasure today to introduce my friend, my colleague, uh, my confidant, uh, Dr. Mark Agronin. Uh, Dr. Agronin is the Senior Vice President of Behavioral Health and Chief Medical Officer of the Mayan Institute at Miami Jewish Health in Miami, Florida, uh, my old stomping grounds. Mark, how are you doing today? Very good. So nice to be here with you and for your complimentary words. Uh, We've got a lot of challenges going on during this pandemic. Uh, Challenges that we face every day, every year with our patients with Alzheimer's disease and other neurocognitive changes. So really glad to be talking about it. That's great. Yeah, you know, COVID-19 really, um, you know, shook us all um, for a variety of reasons. Um, You know, aside from, you know, the devastating health impact on, on patients, um, you know, doctors, um, whether we're on the front lines or our practices have been turned upside down or we really had to learn how to care for patients in a totally different environment, um, you know, adopting telemedicine, changing our practice structures, it's been, it's, been, it's been challenging. And there's also, of course, the financial impact. So it's been tough. Um, but, you know, when it comes to, um, you know, trying to take good care and optimal care of, of, of people suffering with Alzheimer's disease, um, and it comes to some of the advances that are kind of coming along the way. Um, the recent Alzheimer's Association International Conference really had some, some innovative um, uh, research findings, and I'm really looking forward to talking to you about those. Um, and, you know, whether um, we take a simple blood test one day to be able to, you know, better diagnose Alzheimer's, recognize that it's going to come in the years line, uh, whether we can get brain imaging scans, or maybe we don't even need those fancy tests, and maybe we can do an at-home marker um, that requires nothing. Um, I think when it comes to COVID-19 and beyond, um, we need to really think about all of this. That's true. We would, we would have thought that this pandemic would limit what we can do in general, but if anything, it's really showing us some opportunities. Telehealth has enabled so many clinicians to see patients more often to see individuals who otherwise really struggle to get into the clinics because of issues of transportation and and physical disability. We really have to capitalize on those opportunities. And you're right, some of the findings, some of the the innovations reported at the AAIC meeting this year really fit right into that. And I, I would off the top say this really exciting news about a blood-based biomarker. In essence, a blood test for Alzheimer's disease seems really promising. That's something you could do at home if, if you wanted to. Uh, really exciting news. And essentially what researchers have found is that if you measure 
the amount of a specific biomarker for tau protein in the blood and one specific form of, of phosphorylated tau, you can see a direct correlation with the amount of tau deposited in the brain, which is one of the hallmarks of Alzheimer's disease. One study was 96% predictive of those levels. And what's really remarkable is in, in another study, they looked at individuals who have genetic mutations for Alzheimer's disease. So they are on the road to getting it and found that even as early as age 25, this is about 20 years before they're at risk for showing symptoms that you can begin to distinguish the presence of this biomarker from a blood test. That's really remarkable. Yeah, I mean, in, if we would have been having this conversation maybe 20 years ago, we would have said this is probably science fiction. But, you know, uh, in one of the headlines I saw about this marker, uh, the term was, you know, the term game changer was used. And, you know, I, every, time, every time I see the word game changer, I say, oh, no, another game changer. Okay, well, let's right. take one this time. But, you know, when you, when you actually dig into the details a little bit, um, you know, if we can detect someone's going to be on the road to Alzheimer's disease for sure with a 90-something percent um, accuracy, in their 20s, well, that's going to really be helpful because, you know, a lot of the work that we do and a lot of the work that other people are doing are risk factor modification, modifiable risk factors. There are early life, midlife, and late life modifiable risk factors that account for at least 40% of Alzheimer's disease cases based on the 2020 Lancet Commission uh, study, which also came out of the AIC. So if we can determine exactly who's going to be on that path, and if 40% of cases at least, and that's pretty conservative, I honestly think, 40, say 50% of cases can be prevented or delayed you know, significantly, then that type of blood test truly does have some, some impact, clinical impact. Um, you know, I guess what I've read is that it could be a, a couple of years until um, till this test comes out. What do you think for practitioners listening? Um, how do you think, obviously we have some time to get used to it and to figure out what to do with it, but how do you think this will impact um, our um, our, our clinical practice? That, that's a really good question because we both know this has been somewhat of the holy grail of, of early Alzheimer's detection. There have been other tests that seemed really promising along the way that just didn't pan out. So the, the data is so exciting, but clearly there needs to be some more testing and more correlation with this to see uh, you know, the extent that it, that it really is going to make a difference because at the end of the day, it, it has to uh, be more useful than what we already do. If it doesn't go above and beyond both our, our, what we do clinically and using other type of scans, it might not be as helpful as we think. But when you think about it, the possibilities are, are really remarkable. For instance, in your Alzheimer's prevention clinic, just as you stated, there's so much that can be done in terms of lifestyle changes that can affect the, the course, perhaps even uh, when you would, would have an expression of Alzheimer's disease. So that would be the advantage of detecting this risk factor early because then you get people on a program, not for one or two years, not for five or 10 years, but for 20 years. That's really where it's gonna make the difference. And I, that will also be important because think about it this way, if you're 25 or 30, do you wanna know this test results if there's nothing you can do about it? I think that would be difficult for people to handle. Now, it's interesting, one, one of the studies that, that came out at AIC basically was talked about the impact of people finding out if they're, say, positive or not. 
In this case, they looked at individuals who had signed up for a clinical trial and looked at how they reacted to getting a positive or negative amyloid-based PET scan. In general, they found in short term, people didn't overreact. They handled the news just fine. The average age was 70. If we're talking about individuals in their 20s, 30s, 40s, I think that that information would have a greater emotional impact if you can't pair it with something you can do about it. And this is really where your work comes into play. I, I agree. And we've always been cautious about, you know, how much information do you share with someone? Um, you know, in, in, in the old days, when we had patients sitting in front of us, um, you could, you know, at least, you know, make more of a rapport, you could, you know, reach out your hand, you could control someone, um, touch, touch their wrist, whatever it is, um, tap, tap, pat on the back. Um, you know, with COVID-19 and telemedicine, delivering some of this information um, has taken on its own unique set of challenges. I'll put it that way. Um, so, but when it, but I agree when it comes to disclosing, um, you know, amyloid results and then the study again, published John Morology, um, also, um, just like the studies done over a decade ago, um, when they looked at disclosure of the APOE uh, for a variant status. So if you have one copy of the APOE4 variant uh, allele, you have an increased risk of Alzheimer's. If you have two copies, it increases it even more. Um, there was um, the reveal study that showed that you can um, really tell people about their APOE4 uh, variants, whether they have zero, one, or two, and it did not lead to, uh, you know, deleterious effects in terms of psychological harm. Now we've taken that, that research a decade later, one step further. Now we can say, well, when someone does find out um, that they have amyloid in their brain from a PET scan, um, that again, also for the short term, uh, there are no um, negative consequences. And, and I agree with you, as long as uh, the patients in front of us can be empowered uh, to learn that, you know, while we don't have a magic pill and we can't you know, definitively prevent, obviously, and certainly can't cure Alzheimer's disease, you know, there are, there are multiple things based on sound evidence, as well as, you know, grounded in safety that a person can do. And, and again, we go back to those stats, at least probably more uh, can, can prevent it if those people do everything right. And then, of course, in 20 years when they're getting older anyway, there's going to be new blockbuster drugs. Uh, so I'm, I'm really hopeful that, um, first of all, that this test, this uh, ETAL, uh 217 test um, that was uh, published in uh, both JAMA as well as the Journal of Experimental Medicine. Um, and then, you know, this new study in JAMA Neurology uh, that you can disclose the results and, and, and maybe people are okay with that. Again, in the short term, we understand the long-term consequences, but I agree with you. Um, disclosing this to people in their 20s and 30s and 40s is different uh, than when you're disclosing this to people in their you know, 60s, 70s, and beyond. So uh, we definitely study this. That's true. And it's one thing if you're doing an amyloid-based PET scan or you're looking at spinal fluid, someone is going to be interacting with a neurologist, a memory center, a geriatric psychiatrist. There's going to be a lot of interactions to deal with this. If, if we have a blood test out, you can imagine someone walking into any place, just their primary care doctor, getting these results without really having someone who understands them, understands the implications. That would be a concern. Yeah. So if it's not paired up with something you can do, there's no question to be more of an emotional impact. But the yeah. good news is that we already know some things you can pair it up with. For instance, one of the studies uh, that came out recently talked about how body mass index yeah. Uh, can increase your risk of dementia, not just Alzheimer's disease specifically, but in general dementia, by, if you're overweight, 1.8 times, if you are obese, by two and a half times for, for both men and women. And this is measured 
in your 20s and 30s. So already we know that that's a major risk factor. You can do something about that. And uh, there's so many other things in terms of your lipids and your heart health, uh, your diet, that can have an impact as well. So we can teach people that if if, if we're giving them news early on that they're at high risk for Alzheimer's disease. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, it's these uh, studies that just literally came out just, you know, weeks ago. Um, and they're really important because they all, and they all kind of meld together. You know, it's not just, okay, well, we have this great test potentially in a couple of years. What are we going to do about it? But then you, 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 just like you said, the study um, was Columbia University in the United States, over 5,000 adults, and the, they were aged 20 to 49. And those people that a high body mass index or weight high ratio, have a greater risk of dementia. And this is important because being overweight early life is an important risk factor. I think we've known now for probably five, seven, maybe even 10 years that midlife um, obesity, um, being overweight in midlife uh, is, is a major risk factor. Uh, but, but you know, this, this takes the, the clock even earlier. So again, we're talking about modifiable risk factors. This is key. Um, and you know, if, if we're trying to care for a patient um, via telemedicine during COVID-19 or, or just honestly, I think a lot of our patients are going to be cared for via telemedicine uh, going forward. Who knows? 10, 20, 30, 50%, I mean, possibly more. Um, you know, we, even without blood tests, we're realizing um, that we can ask the patient, well, you know, what was your waist size in, in high school? Okay. What was it in college? And what is it now? If it's more than an inch or two, um, you know, that, that central adiposity, visceral fat collection of, you know, of, uh, uh, you know adipose tissue around the, the, the midsection, as the belly size gets larger, the memory center in the can get smaller. That's associated with hippocampal uh, atrophy. So even, you know, a poor man's blood test, uh, we can still have evidence-based conversations with people and you know, just to do a waist circumference, have them hop on a scale whether they get their body fat checked for a more accurate, um, you know, assessment. There's a recent study actually in women. Um, it suggested actually women that had um, central obesity um, had a 39% higher likelihood of dementia later on. Um, I mean, that's, these, these numbers are striking. So if they we really can are. You know, work on weight, um, like you said, cardiovascular risk factors, the sprint mind study showed that, you know, just lowering blood pressure, um, you know, for three years of tighter blood pressure control from the, 140s over 80s to the 120s over the 70s, like not that much. Do that for three years, a little tighter control. You reduce your likelihood of developing the first symptomatic phase of Alzheimer's, mild cognitive impairment due to Alzheimer's by, you know, 15 to almost 20%. So I think I think we're making progress. We all want that blockbuster drug. Uh, but until then, um, there's a lot of biomarkers and clinical markers that can be assessed, whether you're at home over video or over and I think we're beginning to see the results of this because we know even though the, the, the general numbers of people with dementia is increasing because obviously we're an aging society, we're seeing in some areas that the rates are actually going down. And that's likely a, a reflection of healthier lifestyles. Yeah. That information is critical to educate younger people about because by implementing these changes early on, by motivating them to do that, by having them understand the importance of brain health, we can see even greater reductions in terms of the rates of different forms of dementia. Yeah. Alzheimer's disease is certainly going to be the, one of the more difficult ones. Dementia, Lewy bodies, frontotemporal dementia, we understand even less. But in terms of vascular dementia, uh, 
no question, we can achieve a huge reduction in terms of that. And my guess is that Alzheimer's will fall along with that because we know that when you reduce vascular risk factors, you also reduce the risk for Alzheimer's disease. Yeah. You know, and actually right along those lines and talking about biomarkers, um, you know, there was a recent article just published you know, a couple of weeks ago in Neurology, uh, July 13th uh, in Neurology, um, showing that there was an association of cerebrovascular reactivity and Alzheimer's pathologic markers uh, with cognitive performance. And, you know, this is interesting because, you know, I think a lot of people say, oh, well, we'll get these, you know, fancy blood tests out in a couple of years. Okay, well, brain amyloid scans, oh, they're very expensive. I don't have access to that. But what about an MRI? You know, everyone um, really has access to MRIs uh, for the most part anyway, and at least probably the grand grand majority of, of, of uh, practice. Um, and this study, and I'd love your, your thoughts on it, um, you know, what do you think about using an, a new or MRI-based um, uh, metric uh, to be able to predict um, outcomes? Sure. I, I thought this study really is, is opening some new venues for us because essentially by looking at you know, this, this, this concept of cerebrovascular reactivity, you're basically challenging the brain during an MRI. One, one way to do that, you have people breathe carbon dioxide and, and you want to measure how reactive are the cerebral vessels, vessels in terms of constricting or opening up. It, it's in, in some ways showing how resilient your brain is. Mm-hmm. Because obviously blood volume, blood flow makes all the difference in terms of you know, the health of your brain, in terms of brain function. And so by showing this, this dynamic response of the brain, it can tell us at a given moment, we're not talking about down the, down the line what your risks are, but we're seeing in the here and now uh, how well your brain is reacting to stress. And then we can measure over time how we can improve that. And it would be really interesting to see if some of the same approaches to cardiovascular health that we measure by many different ways, now we can measure the impact of those on cerebrovascular health. Right now, we don't really have any way of doing that. And that's important because it's one thing to tell someone who's 25 or 30, hey, if you follow these different guidelines, in 30 or 40 or 50 years, you'll have a reduced chance of Alzheimer's. Now, that will motivate some people, but a lot of people not. But if you say, hey, by, let's say, walking more during the week or engaging in this activity, we can measure your brain improving week by week or month by month. That is big news, and that would really motivate people. So I think this, by measuring the cerebrovascular reactivity on MRIs, it's going to give us a whole new tool that we can use with the individuals we work with. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. So I think, you know, it's been an exciting um, year. It's been an exciting couple of years for Alzheimer's. We haven't really broken through just yet with the blockbuster drug, but there's there's some that are coming down the pike. So I'm, I'm hopeful. But, you know, for, for people that are listening and they say, well, this is um, this is exciting. I'm, I'm more hopeful now. We have some great tools along the pike, maybe MRI and BMI, like maybe we can use some of these now. But let's, let's just talk, maybe take a step back and the practitioners out there, you know, with the boots on the ground that, that want to um, use currently available biomarkers, um, do you perceive, you know, our, our ability to, you know, for example, just, just basic brain imaging, CAT scans and MRIs, what do you think about using just, just basic brain imaging for, um, you know, more targeted diagnosis of, of Alzheimer's disease versus other dementias? Which, which modality do you prefer? What specific things do you look at? What do you tell the radiologist to look at? Or what do you think is most promising? Sure. Given the state of affairs now, it's always best to do this within the context of a specialty clinic. 
because you're putting together a puzzle and one single test is not going to tell the whole tale. So for instance, if you're looking at, let's say a PET scan for either the presence of beta amyloid plaques or, or tau tangles, it's going to be useful for a clinical trial. You will tell someone that it looks like maybe they're on the road to developing this. But the problem is that what's certain is our uncertainty. Right. We see a, you know, incredible heterogeneity in terms of how these conditions are expressed. We see variable courses. And so we have to be cautious if, if you do an MRI and, and you see, for example, hippocampal atrophy, does that mean they have Alzheimer's where they're getting it or they're gonna have a certain course? We just don't know. Uh, same thing for PET scans. I, I've had individuals who have positive scans and five years later, they're doing pretty well. I have other people who have completely uh, declined severely in that. So we need, we need a better way to predict the course or at least to, to see dynamically what's going on. You know, maybe something like cerebrovascular activity would be helpful. It's uncertain at this point, but we, we definitely need better tools because right now the existing biomarkers are giving us more of a categorical diagnosis. They're not doing a lot more than that. And that's a big challenge. And just an example, you could have 100 people all have positive amyloid scans and you're putting them, feeding them into a clinical trial but you don't know what the courses are destined to be based on other important factors that we don't even fully understand. So that really limits our predictability and all the more reason why I see so many individuals come to our clinic and they're, they're panicked or upset because their MRI showed X and a PET scan showed Y and their neuropsych testing showed Z and no one has put that into a context with them. They don't know what to make of it. And even when we put that together, it can give us a good idea of what's going on but it's, we still need to form this relationship with them, this, this dynamic caring relationship over time and still get them involved in all of the preventive measures that, that you've pioneered and that others have, have worked on because it still makes a difference. Because that five, 10, 15 years that someone has Alzheimer's disease, as an example, you can have a, a, a more benign course, you can have a more severe course. There are certainly factors that influence that and we need to understand that better. Yeah, I, and again, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, you know, when it comes to, you know, what a biomarker is, right? A biomarker, it's a measurable indicator of the severity um, or the presence of some disease state. That's kind of what the usual, uh, I guess, definition. And, you know, we can take, is it a molecular uh, marker? Is it a, a brain imaging marker? Um, I think one of the things that is is going to help us in terms of, I mean, you know, I don't, I don't, I usually call it uh, the cognitive biomarker. I'm not even I'm sure if that's a correct term or a cognitive marker, maybe a better term, but you know, I'm, I'm not sure if it's, this is just a semantic argument, but using cognitive testing, using a very sensitive testing, oftentimes computer-based, um, I am, I am, I hope, and I think based on some of the work we've done and some of the work I've seen using some sort of measure to, evaluate trajectory over time. You know, I couldn't agree with you more. When you have a 25 year old in our clinic, that's, you know, we tell them to do these 15 different things based on and they come back and they say, okay, how did I do on the cognitive test this time? And I say, man, you're zooming. Your, your processing speed is up. Uh, your, your memory is a little bit better. Um, you know, your learning ability has always been fine. So that's stable. Um, and you know, your, your higher order processing, your executive function, that's also improved, you know, in between sleeping more and getting your cholesterol a little better and eating healthier, you've done these 15 different things. 
look, I can see it. The proof is in the pudding. And, and I agree with you. If you can show the person some degree of improvement, and, and one day that may be a blood marker, your, your scale went from 0.7 to 0.8, and that means you know, you're 10% less likely and your amyloid's going in the right direction or whatever that may be. Um, but I, I think that um, one day, and I hope, hopefully soon, um, we can use cognition as this marker. What do you think of that? I think it's like going to the gym. If you're not seeing your muscles uh, <laughs> getting bigger, you're, you're not feeling more limber, you're not lifting more, it can be discouraging sometimes. Yeah. Uh, so to some extent, it is the, the, the analogy. You know, we want to see gains. We want to see improvement, yeah. uh, not just this theoretical risk reduction. So I think those, those markers would be good. They're, they're meaningful to people. And I'm finding now, even when we're working with individuals who who have an existing diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease or some other form of dementia, that we look for what are meaningful outcomes for them? What makes a difference? I never thought before of using uh, speech or occupational therapy as frequently, but I'm seeing now, boy, does it make a difference for people. They feel better uh, when you challenge them, they feel they're doing something. That's meaningful, that's practical. So you're right, if we could have some uh, cognitive measures that are sensitive enough to detect that, that would make a difference because otherwise, especially with younger people, we face what I, we call ceiling effect. They do so well to begin with, right. you're not really going to see that. If you're getting a 790 on the SAT, you go to, you know, an 800. I don't know anyone would say, oh, I'm really getting better. Right. We need to find other ways to really indicate to them that, that real change is happening. Exactly. I think just, you know, now there's really just a few, a few uh, measures. There's a, you know, we use a, a modified version of the um, uh, Alzheimer's prevention cognitive composite. There's the PAC, which was used actually in the, uh, in the A4 study, the, the Alzheimer's prevention studies in A4. Um, so I think there's um, some emerging um, batteries, like for example, in our cohort, on a scale of zero to a hundred, um, the average score in normals was 72. So with an average score of 72, it's, it's, it's enough room to, to imp increase a little bit and improve. And in one of our studies, we improved by you know, about five or six points, a little less than 10%. So in, in, if we get the right scales and the right tests, um, and honestly, I think one day this is going to be, you know, hopefully we'll have an app on the phone and you can do just-in-time testing and you can, again, COVID-19 and with the shift telemedicine, uh, we're going to need these, these things. We need the person. We really do. Because I can tell you, doing neuropsych testing, even with the best telehealth connection, is really difficult. Yeah. So we do need something that uh, is going to be able to help us, which not it was not so reliant on booking someone and having someone hand them a piece of paper and do things like that. It's true. The other thing for young people, especially, is trying to refine how we measure cognitive reserve. That's uh, almost like measuring what's in your bank account over time. It's meaningful. It makes a difference. Yeah. Uh, the more that's there, the more stuff there helps you over time. So this, this notion of cognitive reserve is critical. We need better uh, and more scales to really reflect that and, and show some meaningful change over time. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, when, when COVID-19 hit, I had some patients that said, well, what, what do I, if I get sick and I don't want to go to the hospital, like, what do I need at home? So I said, okay, well, you need uh, Tylenol. But if you're going to use the Tylenol, you need a temperature, you need the thermometer. Um, preferably a touchless one, so you can you know, share it around the family. Maybe an oxygen saturation. It may be overkill, but if you honestly get pretty sick and you don't know if you should go in or not, 
check your oxygen set. And a lot of there's wrist sensors that can do it. These are pretty cheap and easy to get nowadays. So just like you had this armamentarium, you know, to prepare for COVID or to monitor one's own health, COVID at home. Um, when it comes to Alzheimer's, you know, we can we can start thinking innovatively about this. Um, for example, a blood, a blood pressure cuff. That's one way to you know modify or mitigate risk. When it comes to um, someone with Alzheimer's dementia, there's um, all sorts of you know, new innovative tools coming out, electronic tools, from pill reminders to um, you know other ways. And a pill reminder is a good. Um, you know, it, it reminds you to take the pill, but honestly, you can, the doctor can tell how the patient is doing by getting feedback from the pill reminder that actually tells you the patient actually had uh, their pills one day this week. Well, sometimes you can use these uh, new apps and these new software packages to communicate back, you know, maybe we can use big data and you know, machine learning to understand, you know, passive data collection as a biomarker, I think is really exciting too, uh, whether it's a, through a risk sensor or through a through a phone app or, or whatever else it is, um, you know, I think I think I think the sky's the limit when it comes to at home bio. So. Sure, because then you can see things happening in real time before things really happen. We know by the time families come to us and say, "Hey, I've noticed a change," that's not when the change began. In in many cases, something's been brewing for months, if not years, at least in terms of actual symptoms. We know the the pathology has been brewing for much longer. But if there's a way to pick that up early, you know, we talked about, you know, biomarker in, in a 25-year-old seeing increased levels of, of phosphorylated tau in the blood. That's one thing. But, but imagine if you could see uh, changes on, a, on an app or something gathered based on a person's gait or on certain interactions that would raise signals early. That, that would be really significant. Great. Well, Dr. Ogronin, I really appreciate uh, the conversation. It was great to catch up and learn from you, as always. Um, thanks so much. Thanks, thanks, thanks so much for, for doing this today. Thank you so much. Pleasure to talk to you. Of course. So uh, this concludes uh, this uh, part of the CME program entitled Scientific Updates to Improve Outcomes in Patients with Alzheimer's Disease, Strategies to Care for Alzheimer's Patients During COVID-19. Thanks so much.